Hello, my name is Raj Mehta, and welcome to Richard Lehman Discusses EBM. How are you today, Richard? Okay, thank you. Um, I'm rather dreading this like a maths exam. We call it maths in, in the plural over here, um, whereas I suppose I, it's less frightening if it's just one math rather than all the maths. Um, anyway, this is going to be very much Raj made to discuss his evidence-based medicine and uh, Richard Lehman shows his ignorance. Um, so um, without further ado, I'm going to ask Raj to, to kick off about uh, statistics and um, methodology in medicine. I think you're understating yourself there, Richard. You're doing yourself a disservice. Um, so today's topic is we're going to discuss a little bit about the history of statistics and that how that informs toward where EBM has come in the modern sense. And if I'm going to think about EBM in the modern sense, I'm really thinking about, you know, the 1940s onward when randomized control trial became the standard for evidence generation and then kickstarted, uh, you know, the real modern sense of clinical trials post-1940s and then, of course, the EBM movement in the 1990s. But uh, statistics is a long history that goes well back before the 1940s. And I think the history is important because it gives context to understanding where we are today and, and why we see a lot of the statistical literature represent itself the way it is. Um, and so I think that should hopefully be a fun dive and an informative one. And I actually want to go back and start in the 1700s and 1800s and discuss, discuss a few mathematicians like Goss, um, was wonderful uh, a brilliant mathematician, and then kind of move on to the late 1800s to the more modern area and introduction of statistics in science with individuals like Galton and others. So how does that agenda sound to you, Richard? That sounds great. And, and I always enjoy these um, <clears throat> forays into the history of mathematics and think that I understand while I'm listening. And then I go away and forget it. And I think in that I'm representative of probably 80, perhaps 90% of doctors. Um, because when it comes to testing um, doctors' understanding of statistical concepts, uh, they rarely come out any better than the general public, despite all the training that they get. Um, and I think that's something that we have to uh, live with or else we have to select medical students in a very different way to be good mathematicians, in which case will they be good clinicians and so on. But anyway, we won't go into that. Well, uh, you know, philosophically, it, it is an odd situation because, you know, if we consider ourselves to be scientists, I think, Fundamentally, that means we can discern truths from non-truths. And in a very data-centric world, that means do we understand enough statistics or data science to be able to determine truths from fiction when analyzing it? And that's a bit of a hard task, I think. I don't know how many of us can do that fully in-depth into the detail we need. But I think this is a continuum. Most, enough, uh, most of us have enough of the basic skills to do a reasonably good job of it. So I don't want to sell the average clinician short. Um, I will say that I think it's interesting that, you know, everyone knows about calculus and, and the major breakthrough that calculus had in innovation and advancing human knowledge. But I think there's an equal one in statistics, um, and it begins in the early 1800s, and it, and it goes to the discovery of something called the least squares method. And to understand the context of this is that before the 1800s, uh, before 1800 especially, there was an issue that mathematicians or any scientists had when they were collecting data. And the issue was is that error would creep in. 
So if I made a measurement of the moon orbiting Earth, um, were my measurements correct? And if I took lots of measurements and tried to combine them, well, if each of those measurements had a little bit of error, if I tried to combine them, it would expand the error, error would multiply. And so there's this huge issue of how to best aggregate data, because if you didn't do a good job combining data together, rather than more data helping you have a more precise, better understanding, more data could worsen your understanding by just adding more and more error. And so that was like the fundamental problem that existed. And it really, really came a lot about in uh, issues like determining the exact size of the Earth, or especially, as I mentioned, in astronomy, looking at different motions of, of objects in the sky and trying to predict where they're going to go. This change in the early 1800s with the discovery of the least squared method, and basically the least squared method, I think first proposed by a gentleman named Legrand, uh, but then uh, Laplace and Goss were the ones who have been at the forefront of this and really proving it, was that you could take data and apply the statistical method of putting the data together in this simple linear algebraic formula of doing least squares. And that could give you, you know, if you have multiple points in the graph, it was basically drawing the best line through those points. And that could give you the best prediction of the data. And more importantly, it would help minimize error rather than aggregating or making it worse. So now you could be confident that if you had lots of measures, you could put those together in a way that would give you a better average without having more errors come into the picture. And suddenly our ability to predict where comets were moving or to predict measurements um, expanded a lot. And there was a really readily available tool to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can um, I take your word for that, um, <laughs> but because the astronomers before 1800 were pretty smart, too, and um, Kepler in particular worked with extraordinary heaps of data and um, Newton, too. And uh, of course, the calculus was partly invented in order to help him cope with that. Um, uh, and um, so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to dive into those methods. Um, do you think that uh, every medical student ought to understand the least squares method? I think, yes. Um, you know, there are some basics of <clears throat> statistics, and it really comes down to this. I don't think you necessarily have to be able to sit down with a pen and paper and do it yourself, although it's not that hard. But I think understanding its historical value in advancing science, understanding it's the bedrock for how a lot of statistics work, should be something everybody knows, just as everyone should know calculus is a foundation for a lot of advanced mathematics and is a core of how engineering and other fields work. So yeah, I, I'll agree with you on that. So the... One of the most important parts of the least square method, though, was proving, right, proving that actually it did reduce and minimize risk of error when you're combining data. It's nice to have a, a statistical approach, this mathematical approach, but you actually have to go through and, and do the theories to show that this is true in a mathematical sense. And unlike science, math is nice in that, you know, you can create basic axioms and then derive wonderful, beautiful proofs that show things are true and false. And so Gauss and Laplace, but mainly Gauss was the brilliant mathematician who was able to prove that the least square methods does in fact um, provide the minimal error and, and does work. But that proof involved a couple of new mathematical theorems, one of which was the central limit theorem. And then there was another theorem on, you know, totality of uncertainty. And the, the core assumptions, the two principles he had to prove that these methods work 
was that the data you were analyzing had to be random and that each data point had to be independent of each other. Uh, and so those were the really core fundamental aspects of it. And if you could ascertain that those two assumptions were true, then you could be confident about using your statistical techniques to get good measurements with minimal amounts of error. And so, you know, I'm beginning this by discussing uncertainty and minimizing error and the importance of random variables. And you can probably imagine how this is going to be coming up later on in medicine. Yes, I can, because um, so much is connected with so much else. And um, so we come up to the with the concept of correlation and regression. And I guess you're going to deal with those at some point. Yes. So one of the nice things about the least square method is that it allows us to, for the first time, do regression. And when we started applying this in the sciences, and Galton was the first one to do this in the mid-1800s, because it takes time for discoveries in one field to disseminate in others. So we have this discovery in mathematics, physics, and astronomy, and then the sciences are taking off. And then the late 1800s, you start having Galton and others apply this information to biologic characteristics to determine if they can find uh, different associations. And he's the one who famously discovered that you can actually quantify uh, correlations between different variables. And so that would create your regression coefficient. And he also discovered this statistical anomaly of regression to the mean, being that when you measured biological characteristics, what seemed abnormal on repeat measurements would often come back to what was more normal, that there was this median approach to this, and that there was certain amounts of randomness uh, that biological characteristics seems to follow in terms of their diversity. Yes, and uh, that that's almost um, a philosophical conundrum, isn't it? Why that happens and um, why it should be true of biological systems and not of other types of physical systems. But obviously, we won't go into the philosophy of mathematics here. We're trying to keep it very simple for Indeed. Um, uh, people like me. Um, so we've got Galton, uh, a sort of universal genius figure from um, the second half of the 19th century. Uh, he, he was uh, a very keen measurer of everything. Um, he was a very keen ma mapper of everything. Um, he's most notorious for being a racist. Um, yes. And um, second most notorious for identifying the women of Aberdeen as the least beautiful in the United Kingdom, um, because he, he did a map of the distribution of female beauty across um, uh, the Great Britain. And um, he was the sort of person who would not balk at doing that kind of thing. Um, but those unsavory aspects of him, um, we can kind of put aside because he did indeed um, establish really the, the science of uh, statistics with his pupil, um, uh, Carl, now what was his name? Um, Pearson. Pearson. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, who became later known famous for the, the chi-squared test or the Pearson test. I, I do think the unsavory elements of Galton's history should be noted, and it actually does have some historical context of importance here too, because one of the difficulties of when you transition techniques you learned from one field of science to the other is that not everything translates. So, you know, in physics or in astronomy, if we make assumptions that our measurements of a comet orbiting the sun, that our measurements are going to be random and it fulfills that criteria that it's a random element and that we can use our statistical approach to minimize error, 
that's all well and good. Uh, but then if I have a broken telescope or the light's not right and my measurements are always off, I'll have some bias, bias that isn't really due to randomness. And then, you know, those measurements aren't very accurate. Now, for an astronomer, they can double check and make sure their telescope is correct and there aren't any issues there. But in biological sciences, that's a lot harder. It's it's much harder to guarantee that the data we're collecting is truly free from any unknown confounders that are messing up what we're doing. And it's very easy to then interpret data based on our own priors, our own beliefs, and convince ourselves something is true. Uh, and I think for someone like Galton, who had his own biases, certainly based on racism and others, uh, on the one hand, it was very powerful to discover this correlation approach and this regression approach to seeing how variables were connected. On the other hand, it also empowered him to make a lot of biased and erroneous assumptions uh, because the, those tech, same techniques that work so well in astronomy um, had a lot of problems when they were just directly used in the biological sciences. And so this became an ongoing conundrum through the early 1900s that as we're collecting these data and not just in, in human biology, but many other scientific fields, these same techniques were not as accurate in making predictions because there were just all these other errors and biases coming in. Um, and it took another genius in the name of Fisher to realize that what he really needed was a better approach to collecting the data, that the issue was not in their statistical analysis. The issue was the data they were collecting, the way they were collecting it, was not truly random and therefore wasn't meeting those original criteria that we need. And that if he devised an approach that was truly random and truly independent for each measurement of the data he was collecting, then those techniques that, that we used before suddenly could become empowered and just as helpful in making predictions and inferences in in the medical fields as they did for the hard sciences. And that's really where the randomized control trial comes in. Yeah, that's a beautiful uh, summary. Thank you, Raj. I, I, I haven't heard that explained as well before. Um, but uh, you made a mistake of, call, of, of referring to medical experiments with Fisher, whereas his experiments were uh, actually agricultural experiments. That's right. Thank um, you for that uh, correction. Uh, we, <laughs> yeah. Well, just to show that I'm not ignorant, but um, <laughs> it, it does actually have some um, some relevance to um, to what people are t saying about Fisher these days, um, and and how his methods were adopted, perhaps less critically than they should have been. But I don't understand the the detail of that debate, so let's not go into it here. R. A. Fisher was certainly. Um, a very important figure and um, probably the most important figure in um, the statistics that underlie randomized control trials. I don't think anyone can debate that, dispute that. Yeah, so thank you for that correction, Richard. So R.A. Fisher was an agriculturist, so he found out that he was able to help this with the agricultural sciences. And I believe then it was Sir Bradford Hill who was the first one to really take that approach and then apply the first clinical randomized controlled trial. Yes, and now um, I've, I've been looking up a little bit about Austin Bradford Hill, um, and uh, he's a man after my own heart. Um, he said that he had no mathematical ability at all, which is why he surrounded himself with um, statisticians. Um, and he refused to, um, 
to fail any medical student on the grounds of being completely ignorant about statistics. Um, and, uh, <laughs> he makes these points beautifully um, in, in various writings. And there's a lovely essay by, by Ian Chalmers about um, Bradford Hill, who they, they became friends in, in Hill's later life. Uh, which I'll send you the reference to so you can stick it onto this podcast. But it's, it's really fun reading. Mm, that's wonderful. <clears throat> so this is a very brief jump through those, I think, key points. And there are some wonderful books out there that I've used to read and learn about these topics myself. Um, and I'll, I'll wrap this up by uh, giving a description for randomized control trial and statistics by David Cox, he says there's really three roles for doing this. Uh, one, it's a device for eliminating biases, for example, from unexplained variables and selection basis. Number two, it's a basis for estimating standard errors. Um, and then number three, it's a foundation for significant testing. And for us in the medical sciences, I think it's important to understand that the core of why randomization is so important is because it does eliminate those concerns for biases from our data collection process. And, and the heart of that is this understanding that, you know, it meets those assumptions at the core of a statistical test. And those assumptions are that, you know, our data is uh, independent from each other, each measurement, and that the variables we're measuring are truly random and independent. Yeah, that's, that, that is a very clear way of putting it. And uh, I think, um, Everyone needs to start from that point um, before we deal with any of the complex issues of trial design, which uh, we may come on to or we have been already come on to in, in, in other episodes. Uh, so we've got there. And um, can you just take us through how uh, Bradford Hill uh, designed the, the streptomycin trial um, that set a standard for, for the, the future randomized yes. control trials. I'll just add as a side note that, you know, the first randomized control trial, it was looking at, I think, patulin for the common cold. Um, and of course, they found out that it didn't make any difference. So I, I love the fact that over 100 years later, here I am as a family doc worrying about writing antibiotics for, for viral colds. And of course, that was the first randomized control trial we ever did. And, you know, how much practice did that really change? So... Uh, a note of irony somewhat. But what this goes back to is that, you know, trials have been uh, ongoing since the 1800s. We had the first recognition that, you know, data was important, and you had introduction of parallel control trials, of course, with James Lynn, the first one to realize that if you're doing clinical trials, they need to be done at, concurrently at the same time. And the 1800s, you had the importance of adding a placebo for comparison. If you didn't have a comparison, the placebo effect could bias that. And then in the early 1900s, trials were getting a little bit larger and they're trying to get more robust. And you had this issue with how do you allocate patients between going into an experimental group versus a placebo group. And they tried things like, you know, having patients alternate. So the first patient goes to one group, the second patient goes to the second group, and so on. Uh, and I'll make a note here that, you know, despite all the theoretical uh, stuff I mentioned about mathematics, Statistics, I think, at its core is a very practical profession. The lessons they learn, they've learned through trial and error. They've learned through doing these studies and running into issues and realizing that we need to do a better job of how we design trials. So there is some basis in good theory, but the best statisticians that I've read from or discussed are ones who have done this in practice. And 
their experience in traditional history and wisdom over, over trial and error is really informs this. And you see this in the early 1900s because despite these various attempts at doing different methods, you know, the, there were still concerns of error and bias, and they really felt like things weren't uh, as good as they could be. And so they had to introduce things like blinding, so that way people wouldn't know which group you're going into. But even doing that, people could sometimes guess what group a patient would go into and potentially introduce error. And so when the idea of a randomized trial, a random up from other areas, from Fisher and others, and with the statistical, powerful statistical techniques that tied the randomized selection process with better ways to analyze data, I think it became a very appealing way for the clinical scientists to try that approach. And so then it became important that when they did their trials, they had to design methods where there was blinding by the assessors, blinding by those being enrolled, and that selection process about which patient goes into the experimental versus control group becomes randomized so that when you're then analyzing the data and comparing the control and experimental group, you can be confident that, yeah, it's truly random. You don't have to worry about bias creeping in. And the only error you have to worry about is random error, which you can control for in the statistical techniques. Yeah, perfect. And um, Bradford Hill's uh, strength here was that he was looking at human behavior. Uh, he was not looking at the statistics so much as what might bias the statistics. And um, I, in fact, he, he said that the design of the trial was perhaps not his greatest achievement. Um, his greatest achievement was to persuade doctors that they'd done a good trial. And he did that by simply stating that there was no cheating possible and laying out these very basic principles that you've just outlined. And uh, as a result, the trial uh, was um, widely used as a model after that. Um, and he became a famous figure, um, but not really for the sophistication of his mathematical techniques. I mean, this is hugely important because it's one thing to have something that works. It's quite another to convince others that it's a value and take widespread adoption. So I would have to support that claim. And I think I've not heard that before, but that's such a beautiful way of saying it, which is that we believe in these methods because we believe cheating is not possible. And the core of this is trust. That, you know, the core of EBM is that we trust data, we trust results that are there, and we have trust amongst ourselves as a profession that we're doing is correct and that these approaches are correct. And sometimes we may be wrong, but that but the errors that occur shouldn't be through cheating, but through the, the nature of chance and how science and discovery works. Yeah. So we've got to 1947, let's say 1950. Um, we've been here before occasionally, haven't we, at this, this critical juncture where the technique of randomized control trials was beginning to infiltrate medicine uh, and evidence was beginning to overcome eminence and habit. Um, so uh, where do you see statistics as having gone since then? So I'll add a couple other things. So it's important to note that, you know, the statistics uh, revolutions of the 1800s, early 1900s, didn't just improve uh, conduction of controlled trials. It also improved how we operated in terms of diagnostic tests, um, in terms of creating diagnoses. Um, you know, after World War II, with the invention of radar, you first have these uh, ROC curves and you have the introduction of things like test sensitivity and specificity because we now understand there can be false positives and, ne and false negatives. So suddenly we have a, these robust measures of uh, of approaching, um, understanding that 
tests themselves can have some variance. Um, we start understanding that diagnosis themselves can have criteria and that that there's different elements of reproducibility and that we can use statistical approaches to see how reproducible a diagnostic criteria was in terms of better measures, lowers. Uh, we start coming up with thresholds. So if we have a threshold for a test, we're we going to consider something positive and negative. So a lot of advances happening in real time in the clinical realm of how we practice medicine in addition on the to the research end. And, and those are all incredibly important advances. True. And um so I would, I think I've characterized already in previous episodes, the 1950s and 60s as the adoption of good trial methods and um, the adoption of many huge advances in medicine, some through randomized control trials and some just because they worked very well, like hip replacement and um, kidney transplants and certain drugs. Um, but um, we then come to the 1970s and the um, switch over to more population-based interventions, which we discussed last week and the week before and probably every week, really. Um, <laughs> you can't escape it, Richard. <laughs> can't escape it. Um, but uh, with that, we come to two issues. One is Bayesian approaches to statistical analysis. And secondly, the, the search for the holy grail, which is how we apply evidence to the individual patient. Um, so perhaps you could talk a little bit about those. Yes. And the, the fun thing about Bayes is that it comes up in so many different places and, and used in different references, so it can be confusing. And the historical context here helps. So Bayes himself uh, was a, was an English uh, member of the clergy, I think, or reverend, That's and right. he he was the one who's first credited with this idea of doing um, what was then called inverse probability, but we now call Bayesian inference. And he he basically found, uh, as a simple matter of inference, that if you had existing data and you had new data, how you could update your prior probability of what you thought was happening to a newer one. So it's, it's a very simple thing that we do all the time now. But when he came up with the proof that you could do this, uh, it was quite revolutionary. Uh, Laplace had independently come up with it many years later, so that the credit goes to Bayes. But Laplace was the one who used this a lot and then Goss after him to help prove uh, things like the central limit theorem as part of the original linear squares regression. So the original Bayesian inference was huge in order for us to advance and get linear regression, and it's part of all statistics, right? So that exists. Now, as a procedural matter, um, doing Bayesian approach statistics is very difficult number crunching-wise. So if you're in the 1800s and early 1900s, and you're doing all your number calculations by pen and paper, it's very complicated to try and just do it using pure Bayesian approaches. So it made much more sense to come up with other shortcuts to make the math easier. Um, and so that's when frequentist statistics came in. It still used all the fundamental elements of statistics that involved Bayesian inference, that involved central limit theorem, that involved you know linear regression and so on. But the frequentist approach just made the number calculations easy to do by hand, and which is why uh, Fisher did it and then all the statisticians at that time. Now, this changed, of course, in the 1970s and 80s because now we have computers. And computers can do our number crunching for us. So a lot of people said, well, why use the frequentist approach, which really is just made to make the number calculating easier? Why don't we just use the Bayes 
approach to do all the statistical testing. And they're really equivalent. And, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages of it, but they're both fair approaches. When you do the frequentist approach, of course, you'll get a p-value, and then we use that to determine test statistical significance. Uh, Bayesian uh, analytical approaches don't specifically have p-values. You know, they have thresholds, and they give co uh, compatibility intervals, and you have to interpret them a little bit differently. Um, the nice thing about computers and using Bayesian methods of statistical analysis is, though, is that we get a little bit more flexibility in what we do it. You know, the frequentist approach, which works very well, um, kind of makes us have a more fixed approach to doing a trial. So I have to have a fixed sample size, and then I go do my trial. And you could actually have adaptive trial size with frequentist methods, but it gets quite complex. Whereas with Bayesian method, you can do more advanced things like have adaptive trials. So as the trial is going on, maybe change the sample size depending on the goals you're reaching without worrying about introducing errors. Um, and that's just the surface of it. There are some advanced adaptive stuff that try to do things like you can have a trial without concurrent controls, which gets a little bit controversial, and they do all these funny advanced mathematical things to go about approaching it. So Bayes and Bayesian statistics is a core part of biostatistics involved in what everyone does. And But when people talk about Bayesian methods of trial research, they're really discussing whether we're doing the planning and the number crunching using frequentist methods versus the computer Bayesian methods um, and with different amounts of flexibility and approaches you can take. That's wonderful. Again, I haven't heard it described so clearly before. Uh, to me, Bayes just seems a much more instinctive and natural way of looking at things because in real life, we are Bayesians. We, we assess things on the basis of prior experience and um, of course uh, and so um, a lot of clinical logic um, can only really be done um, or explained in, in terms of prior probabilities and the way they change with testing and so on and we've done a little bit of that in these talks that's that's terrific um, well we've gone on for about half an hour which is quite a lot for a mathematical topic and yet I don't feel that we've tired ourselves out particularly and you certainly haven't tired me out um, but uh, perhaps we should be thinking of concluding points about um, how where statistics go and how artificial intelligence will um, complicate the field and other issues uh, which you may want to raise Raj. Yeah so I'll summarize by saying that I think you know statistics is a, is a lovely field but I think for clinicians to have a better grasp of it. I think the historical context is helpful and useful to know. Um, I just as I think calculus is an important historical point in human history, you know, discovery of least squares method um, and how that changed so many fields of science is really useful to know um, and how it informs discovery in statistics and applications and health sciences afterwards. Um, so I think that's really a core part of it. And then understanding that as clinicians, we appreciate the value of randomized control trials because we understand it as no cheating is possible and we have trust in that, uh, but it also serves a huge statistical important assumption of randomness in our data and the independence of the data as we collect it and we measure it. Um, and that's something that non-randomized data collection methods will lack uh, and always will create a bit of uncertainty and bias. Um, there's lots of areas that this is affected, not just trials themselves, but advancements in the sciences, uh, how we approach testing, diagnosis, and et cetera. And I I can't promise to understand how AI will influence all these things, but I'll, I'll just add a note for another discussion that 
AI approaches to making predictions and analyzing data is very different than statistics. And statistics, we know the variables, we're doing the the linear regression or statistical approaches, and it's very open box. We can see the processes, what we're doing. We understand how the data is being analyzed and we can kind of investigate it. And when AI analyzes stuff, it's more of a black box. We don't really know what it's doing underneath it. We have a general sense, but that makes it a little bit trickier sometimes. Um, and it's really important that even for good AI to work, it has to have good data. If you have an AI system analyzing something based on excellent randomized data, um, that'll be better than AI that will make mistakes off biased data. So yeah, we're right going. back to um, yeah. uh, to the considerations you you started with, which is how do we uh, prevent the uh, magnification of error rather than the right. reduction in error? And I suspect that by trusting black boxes, we run a big risk of multiplying error and yes. duplicating error. Um, so that's um, that that's dealt with a lot of quantitative research, um, randomized research. Um, so I'll I'll just end with a, um, a question to trip you up, and that is, what do you think of uh, multiple adjustments to observational data? You're right. So uh, this is a little bit more a nuanced topic. So in randomized control trials, we do multiple adjustments all the time, and that actually helps make the results we have more precise and reduces error. Um, but observational studies are very different because in randomized controls, we don't have to worry about confounders. So the adjustments we're doing are just getting more precise estimates of error, random error. And in observational studies, um, with especially advances in causal inference, we're attempting to try and control for all those confounders, confounders that randomized data don't have to worry about. And so if we really fully understand a system and we understand all the variables that can cause uh, conflict and we can adjust for them, um, that can give us a better idea of what's happening. And that's very useful in many sciences where randomized trials are not possible or we just have to make do with obvious observations. It really works, though, when you understand mechanisms, when you have a system and a predictable mechanism. Like if I'm going to predict what's going to happen in a car collision, it's really hard with physiology, human physiology, because it's just really hard to predict what's going to happen in the human body and hard to consider that and contemplate that we're going to understand all the things that could influence it, even with all the adjustments that we can come up with cleverly. So great to do studies that do thoughtful adjustments and observation studies, I will also feel stronger about, um, but there's always that lingering doubt in the back of my mind. Yes, well, um, perhaps I'll end by saying that Bradford Hill uh, criticized his co-worker Doll for accepting observational evidence for the causality of smoking in relation to lung cancer because it did not satisfy the purity of uh, uh, the, the, the basic principles of statistical proof of causality. And yet there was a vast amount of uh, triangulated evidence, let's call it, from various sources, animal experiments, human observations, um, and natural experiments where doctors gave up smoking, whereas most of the rest of the population didn't. Um, and all these slightly dirty um, methods, uh, which were not randomization, but all pointed to a single cause. And I think um, smoking is almost unique in that, that it's such a very strong factor for um, 
for lung cancer. You can do it by the by an association curve, just showing when um, smoking went down amongst males in America, and then you know, lo and behold, 15 years later, the the um, uh, prevalence of um, uh, or the, the incidence of uh, lung cancer goes down as well. So anyway, um, yeah. this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been more a, a lecture on your part than a discussion, but a wonderful lecture. And um, thank you, Richard. It sets us up well to talk about these issues in the in the future.